2: the Latin American History Podcast, episode 51, Coronavirus Economics in Latin America. Today I have something a bit special for you. The whole world is reeling from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic at the moment, and Western countries have been particularly badly hit. If you've been following the news closely, you may have noticed that unfortunately Latin America is now not far behind. The WHO recently declared, that the region is becoming the new epicentre of the pandemic. And the number of cases and deaths has started to take off, though. Now, of course, this is primarily a health crisis, and each death is a personal tragedy. We also know that the pandemic and the measures taken to combat it will have dire economic effects as well. These have the potential to have long-lasting impacts on the development of the region and the quality of life of its inhabitants, compounding those personal tragedies. Now, the coronavirus is not history, it's a current event, so obviously covering it is a bit of a break from the usual subject matter of this podcast. I think we can safely say, though, that once some time has elapsed, it certainly will be considered an important part of history. Historians of the future will be analysing it, and arguing over the impact it had on whatever comes next. This will be true of Latin America as much as anywhere else. So I think it's something worth devoting some attention to, and luckily enough, I was able to record a conversation with someone perfectly placed to talk about it. Walter Milano is an economist who knows the region and its economics intimately. He is the chief economist at BCP Securities, and he also heads the company's research department. His focus is on emerging markets, particularly Latin America, and in normal times, when travel hasn't been heavily disrupted by coronavirus, he spends much of his life in Latin America. He's also something of a historian, and he's written two books on Latin American history. One of these, When Latins Fight, Why There's No United States of Latin America, was the subject of the second half of our conversation. That will be next episode. And I will introduce it properly then. But it's a fascinating book which takes on the daunting task of outlining the causes, events, and legacies of all the major conflicts in post independence South America. The first half of our conversation is this episode. So here it is a conversation on the effects of the coronavirus on the economies of Latin America. Well, thank you for joining us, Walter. Hi, Max. I was wondering what kind of impact the coronavirus is going to have on the governments in Latin America, specifically in terms of how much they can afford to support the economy in the way that we've seen in Western countries. So I'm not 100% up to speed with exactly what's been going on in America, but in the UK and here in Australia and I think a lot of Europe, there have been wage subsidy programs, there's been just straight money handouts. Have countries in Latin America been following those policies? And if so, can they afford to do it?
0: The, uh, the coronavirus is hitting Latin America very hard. It's hitting it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is the, the immense amount of poverty that you have in Latin America. And, and so you have large concentrations of population in small areas, you know, slums, for lack of a better word. Um, these have different names, favelas, vías uh, but they're always just the same slums. And so you have people packed in. And so as a result, it's having, you know, as it is in other countries, it's having a different effect on different classes. And it's hitting the poor much worse than, than, the, uh, than the wealthy people. The second way that it's, it's affecting the region is that these are relatively poor countries. Although the IMF and the World Bank classifies these as middle-income countries, for the most part, they're well, They are much poorer than you know, uh, North America and uh, and the European countries, which have had the resources to mobilize uh, medical equipment and also to uh, mobilize help for for the uh, poorer elements of the society. Some countries like Argentina have taken steps to uh, to provide added uh, financial help to, for example, first responders, for medical people, uh, for the poor. They have opened up, and just about every single country has also opened up uh, food assistance, food banks, uh, uh, food pantries, those kind of things to help out people. Uh, Argentina has also been able to, to provide direct financial assistance. And most of the countries have made statements saying that if they cannot, if people cannot pay their rent, that, you know, uh, they can... They can, uh, and if they can justify it, that they don't have to do it. But of course, this creates other problems because, therefore, the landlords they have to make their mortgage payments, they have to pay their own bills, and they have to pay taxes, and so that's being affected as well. Most of the countries, like for example, especially in Colombia, they have delayed uh, the receipt of taxes; they've pushed it back two to three months. But it also, it you know, it just begins to accumulate. Because it isn't like they're providing tax relief or reducing the amount of taxes that they're collecting. They're just delaying it, but you know that it just becomes inevitable. As a result, I think that there is going to be a major economic impact on Latin America. And economics and politics go hand-in-hand. Hand. It's a hand-in-glove type of thing. And so as a result, we can expect, and I do expect, that there is going to be a lot of political blowback uh, for these countries. If you take a look at the media in all of these countries, uh, the main topic is coronavirus. Um, even though these countries are navigating other problems at the same time, the coronavirus is what da- dominates the talk shows, the news cycle, everything.
2: Usually, I'm assuming that if if a country or, or Latin America as a whole goes through a downturn, the economies of the developed countries are still strong. That can help maybe be a route out, Um, there can be stimulus coming from from Western countries, but seeing as pretty much the whole world will be facing economic problems at the moment, do you think that could compound the crisis in Latin America?
0: Well, I think it can.
2: Um, One of the problems that we have right now is really
0: Latin America related in that um, two years ago, the IMF, at the behest of the Trump administration, lent Argentina about half of its balance sheet. So about half of the money that it had to, uh, to lend to the rest of the world. And then Argentina got into a big economic downturn. And right now, the, um, what they're doing is they're going through a debt restructuring. Unfortunately, part of the debt that's going to be restructured is that IMF debt. The IMF is going to have to extend out the recovery of their funds from what was expected to be two to three years to be something like more like eight years. And so that's reduced by half the amount of money that the IMF had to, you know, help out other countries. And this has been happening at the same time that the IMF has been seeing enormous amounts of pleas from, you know, poorer countries, especially like African countries, for help, but they just don't have the resources to do so. They're just putting it out piecemeal. So the major institutions that the West had set up, the developed countries had set up to help out developing countries, which was the IMF and the World Bank, are now grossly underfunded, really due to domestic politics, and you, just, you can't just blame Trump for that. Uh, also, the Europeans are, are partially the blame. And that's creating a vacuum. And this is an opportunity maybe for the Chinese to come in. And the Chinese have been, in the, in the beginning, were trying to give more direct support Early on into the coronavirus, the Chinese were sending, you know, machinery, doctors, uh, medical supplies to a lot of Latin American countries. That created, you know, political repercussions as well. And there was there was accusations of tainted, you know, equipment.
2: And so it creates noise. You mentioned Argentina already had a debt restructuring going on there. Are there there any other big economic stories that were already happening um, before the, the pandemic hit, and how do you think that the pandemic will affect them?
0: The other major economic story in the region, as far as debt goes, is Ecuador. Ecuador was already flailing for some time. About 20 years ago, Ecuador decided to abandon its currency uh, and adopt the dollar. Uh, and it did so on, on the argument that about 70% of its income came from oil, which is a dollar-denominated uh, uh, um, uh, commodity. It was also based on the fact that um, you know, its other major exports, like flowers and shrimps, were also denominated in dollars. And so 20 years ago, the outlook for oil was very good. China was just reincorporating itself into the, uh, into the global economy as it joined the WTO, And it worked out great for a while. But when you dollarize, you lose complete control of your currency. And in the last few years with the financial crisis, especially in the last 10 years with the financial crisis, and then with most countries going and governments going into what they call quantitative easing, where they reduce interest rates, and the United States was the last country to do so, the dollar got very strong. So as a result, Ecuador lost its competitiveness Against its major rivals, you know, economic rivals in that case being Colombia and uh, and Peru, which you know Peru you know exports a lot of shrimp and uh, and fishing, and Colombia exports a lot of flowers, which is you know Ecuador's second biggest export. On top of that, you had the collapse in oil prices just you know about six weeks ago, when oil prices, at least on the future side, went into negative territory. As a result. Ecuador is now headed for a debt restructuring as well. They have already put a moratorium on their debt service and they hope to have a proposal out to bondholders by uh, August. The second country that's in a similar situation is El Salvador, another country that dollarized for similar type of reasons. People had lost confidence in the currency and as a result they decided to uh, adopt the dollar. Uh, there's another country that's dollarized in, in Latin America, but it has no problems, and that's Panama. Panama uses the dollar fully as its currency. The thing is that its major export is the canal, and there really isn't that much change or variance in canal traffic. It is what it is, and so as a result, we don't really see the ups and downs as you see in you know, the exports of, say, flowers or oil or other things like that, like we see in some of these other countries. So those are the major ones. Of course, all, all of the countries are, are facing problems because Latin America lives off of either commodities, which we've seen a lot of them decline, except for agricultural commodities. We've seen, or they live off uh, tourism, which we've seen a big decline in uh, tourism or collapse in tourism, and that's hit Central America and the Caribbean incredibly hard. Uh, and then the third one is remittances. Many of these countries uh, use uh, immigration or the export of their own workforce as a source of revenue. And especially it's especially the case in Central America where countries like Costa Rica, El Salvador, not so much Costa Rica, I'm sorry, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, depend for almost 20% of their GDP. Most of their earnings come from remittances, money that, you know, workers that have gone to the United States or to Europe, especially to Spain, send back. And many of these workers are in services, you know, things like uh, restaurants and their busboys and waiters and cooks. And unfortunately with the coronavirus and with many of these establishments being shut down, they have lost that uh, they've lost their jobs and as a result they have been they have not been able to send their money back. And this is creating serious problems for countries that were relatively well managed. As much as Guatemala does not seem to be, you know, a, a place of, of economic or political stability from appearances, from the economic side, it is very well managed. It has very low levels of debt. Thanks to the remittances, they have a solid balance of payments. But with remittances drying up, now it's finding itself in a crisis situation. It is not on the verge of default like El Salvador or Ecuador, but it is starting to get stressed.
2: Do you have an estimate of how much of the various countries' economies is made up of tourism and remittances? Because they're two things which are completely out of the control of each nation's government and I imagine won't be heading back to the levels they were at before for quite a long time. I don't have the exact list and, and the breakdown,
0: but it's mainly Central America depends on remittances, and as I said, the the, uh, the numbers max out somewhere around 20-22% of, uh, of GDP, and it's the Caribbean countries that depend mainly on tourism. Um, like, for example, Bahamas, Cayman, uh, you know, uh, all, all the, uh, the Dominican Republic, they Tourism represents maybe probably about a third of their GDP. In the case of Bahamas, it probably could be something as high as 70% of GDP. Um, the numbers in some of the other countries are actually larger. Like, for example, tourism receipts in uh, in Mexico are huge. Okay? They're somewhere in the order of $30 billion. And then uh, in as far as uh, remittances, also it's a very large number. But given the fact that Mexico is such a big economy, then... As a percentage of GDP, it's much more minimized, and so what you end up getting is regional impacts. Like, for example, the Yucatan Peninsula is, a, or the coast really in Mexico, because Acapulco as well, um, are affected by the downturn in uh, in tourism. Maybe some of the of the central highland areas, like Michoacan, which sends a lot of uh, you know immigrants north into the United States, they're affected much more by the downturn in uh, in remittances. But more industrial areas, such as Monterey, they're going to be less affected, and especially there's been efforts to try to get the uh, auto industry back online.
2: I know that Argentina, and I think Brazil, were both betting heavily on energy projects. And they'd, I believe, invested quite a lot of money into it. Obviously, I imagine that things have changed there, those projects won't be as viable and as attractive to investors as there is. Well, a global downturn, I imagine. Um, so I was wondering if you, what effects do you think that could have on those countries? These uh, countries, both of these countries, did bet heavily
0: on uh, on oil for their future. Um, in the case of Brazil, it was uh, offshore oil fields called the Pre-Salt. They are very deep water. They're also very deep below the ground and they're called pre-salt because they're underneath a very thick layer of salt which is i think more than a kilometer thick Uh, they're under a very high temperature and also under very high pressure and brazil has been able to develop the technology it's become a leader in in, uh, a global leader in deep water oil exploration and, and production um in the case of argentina they have huge shale fields, similar to what the United States has in Texas and South Dakota uh, and in the, in the Patagonia area, which they're uh, trying to develop as well. Now, in the case of Brazil, Brazil started to develop these about 15 years ago, and they're now into the production phase of it. In the case of Argentina, they are still kind of in the greenfield uh, stage, meaning that they're Barely right now starting to get them online and not only that but what they need is immense amount of infrastructure Brazil already put in the infrastructure. They put in oil pipelines. They put in ports Rio de Janeiro is uh, is an oil boom town with all sorts of docks and and uh, and a whole fleet of ships that go back and forth to these oil fields and Pick up the uh, the oil drop off the the, uh, the men and the equipment and then bring it back. They are now in full swing In the case of argentina they're right now putting in the infrastructure they need about 100 billion dollars to put in roads railroads pipelines all that stuff to uh to get the oil out the reason why shale was so successful in the united states wasn't that because the americans were were better at it it's just because it was right in the united states a country with very good infrastructure it was right in the heart of texas where they already had the equipment, they already had the men, the engineers, they already had the pipelines, they already had the railroads thanks to, you know, 250 years of, of development. Um, Argentina has never really developed the Patagonia. It's always was a, a backland, a wasteland that didn't really get incorporated into Argentina until the 1860s when, you know, Chile gave up its uh, its claim to the uh, Patagonia and then Argentina started to, uh, to move into it. So it's a relatively new land and it's been a backwater without the infrastructure that you need to develop this kind of uh, these kind of shale fields. So Argentina is still in the early stages. Now, the good news is that both of these fields produce enormous amounts of oil and gas, but it's also a lot of it is for local consumption and given the fact that these countries are able to set their own prices for energy then what they've done is they've kept their their prices relatively high so what it's done is it's reduced their dependence on external energy resources on external oil on external gas argentina had to bring in tank loads uh, tanker loads of uh, of natural gas from the from the middle east to satisfy its uh, its natural gas needs uh, they brought in gas from Bolivia. The same thing goes with Brazil. And now what they're doing is they're depending totally on their uh, on their local sources. So it's not as much of a disaster story as one would think.
2: I guess it's probably hard to to say because we're talking about such a vast region with, I imagine, a range of responses to the pandemic and pre-existing situations. But do you think for the average Latin American, the quality of life is going to go down significantly as a result of the pandemic? Um, it's, a, it's hard to, to
0: say. It's, it's kind of like it is in the rest of the world. The response to the pandemic has really been according to class. Uh, for example, in, in the case of Mexico, uh, the president Andrés Manuel López Obrador, AMLO, he has taken a very cavalier attitude to the uh, to to the pandemic, and so it's kind of react as you want to react. It isn't like the heavy lockdowns that you see in Italy or or in uh, in Spain or, or that kind of thing. Um, what it is is just in the wealthier areas, you see people wearing masks, you see the amount of traffic coming down dramatically. Uh, People working from home, telecommuting, all sorts of stuff like that. But when you move into the poor uh, neighborhoods of Mexico City, it's business as usual. You know, you know, you have restaurants, but they're not really restaurants. They're just, you know, stalls where people have benches and and it's workers who are eating. Their their business is normal. The open air markets, their business is normal. But then again. That's where the uh, the the uh, disease is flaring up and raging. The same thing goes with you know Brazil, you know, and those are two areas, to, those are two countries where the co- governments have taken you know kind of a more lax type of stance towards the uh, pandemic, and so as a result, those are also two of the countries which have seen the most infections and the most deaths. And the last statistic I saw, I think that. Brazil is number three or number two now in the number of deaths uh, caused by the uh, coronavirus. So the the quality of life, I think, has changed, but it depends on where you are. Uh, in the poorer areas, it hasn't changed that much. In, a, in the richer areas or the wealthier areas, it
2: has. And another thing that occurred to me is the crisis was also accompanied by a big drop in the oil price which obviously will affect several countries in latin america as we've touched on already however um i know venezuela in particular is heavily dependent on oil of course it was already in quite dire straits economically it has been for a very long time i don't quite know how they've done it but the venezuelan government seems to be able to hold on despite everything and ride through enormous storms politically and economically do you do you think that the pandemic and the oil crisis which i'm not up to speed on exactly what's going on with that um i don't have a good understanding of it but do you think that this could be the thing that causes that government to collapse um Venezuela is, I think is a very interesting
0: case, and I think that a lot of doctoral dissertations will be written in the future over that issue. How was is the Venezuelan government able to to hold on? I think it's uh, it's a case of totalitarian control. First of all, you had massive immigration, so um, you know most of the middle class and, and the upper classes as, as well left. So most of the intellectual leadership capabilities of the country, Uh, departed for other parts of the world. You had mass migration. Uh, The second thing is you had the enormous amount of experience from Cuba that was shared directly with with Venezuela. And so they were able to bring in the know-how and the techniques to have complete totalitarian control of all of the i guess uh power levers in the in the country especially over the the military the military is heavily heavily uh supervised and monitored uh people's homes are bugged telephone lines are tapped uh there's they've been completely infiltrated and there's constant purges of um of military people who have you know seditious type of leanings or conspiring and so as a result they've been able to to control it completely what we have found you know time and time again is that when you when you place embargoes on countries what you really do is you empower countries because when a country when a government has got you know the more control it has over distribution of goods and services the more control it has over the population. And placing embargoes on Venezuela, as the United States did over the course of the last three years, or maybe even more, then what it did is it gave the government full control over the distribution of food, of goods, of currency, of, of basic services, so you can cower and, and, and force and coerce populations to do and bend at your will. I think that the only end to Venezuela, unfortunately, is going to have to be some kind of armed intervention by an external force. And I just don't see any government right now in the region that is willing to partake in, in, in,
2: in an event like that. So do we have any idea about how badly Venezuela has been hit and how, how much worse can the economy get from its pre-pandemic state?
0: Um, I think that it uh, when you say the word when you use the word "hit," you know, what you're talking about is a, a move in relative position. And I just think that Venezuela was so poorly off; it was so bad off that <laughs> nothing really changed. You know, the uh, the country has got um, had seen a, a complete collapse of its oil production due to the lack of replacement parts, equipment, talent, engineers, all these people who had left. So it was just a trickle of oil that was coming out. Uh, the, the amount of oil money that does come in is from you know basically uh, China and, and Russia that have then grabbed large parts of the oil industry. I think that it's in their interest to make sure in their political interest vis-a-vis the United States to keep Venezuela afloat. So, you know, with a very small amount of money, they're doing so. And again, the country which has the most interest in seeing Venezuela survive is Cuba in in its current form. I mean, they want to see it survive under under this type of regime because Venezuela is the only factor that keeps Cuba afloat. Cuba no longer gets, you know, economic support from Russia or never really got it from, uh, from China, but it is the oil that that Venezuela gives to uh, to Cuba that allows it to keep on functioning and also gives it a source of revenue for exports. So therefore, Cuba is providing all of its resources, as much as it can, uh,
2: to make sure that this regime survives. How pessimistic or optimistic are you for the future of the region in light of coronavirus? i'm optimistic about the region
0: um i'm optimistic because first of all it's a it's a region that's resilient uh it's it's managed to survive um you know all sorts of internal and external types of shocks this is just another external shock um i'm also optimistic because latin america survives is on commodities because what it has is has a lot of excess land compared to its population. And what it does have is enormous amount of water. And agriculture is just the export of water. It's the export of water with value added. You know, instead of, you know, exporting tankers full of water to China, what you do so that they could use it to irrigate their fields and their rice and and take care of their feedstock... What they do, what the Latins do, is they use the water then to do it there internally and it's much more efficient than to send it out, than corn and soybeans and beef and that kind of stuff. And that's not going to change at all. In fact, um, it's just making it much more pronounced. And climate change is also, I think, that is going to work in, in favor of, of Latin America. And we still have 8 billion people on the, uh, on the planet. 8 billion people that need to eat, 8 billion, uh, you know, 130 or so countries that want to make sure that they continue to, to feed their people because if they don't feed them, then they definitely will have revolution on, on their hands. And so, you know, if you take a look at most of the Latin American countries, just about every single Latin American country, they're all net exporters of agricultural goods, and I think that is going to continue.
2: Well, that's a nice positive note to end on. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Max. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com/slash The History of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for The Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening.